KPBS On Demand is supported by the Institute of Contemporary Art San Diego with Gabriel Rico's Unity and Variety, neon, taxidermy, and augmented reality sculptures from locally sourced objects transform the galleries. Open September 24th in Balboa Park, icasandiego.org. From So Say We All and KPBS in San Diego, welcome to Incoming, the series that features true stories from the lives of America's veterans told in their own words, straight from their own mouths. I'm your host, Justin Hudnall. Today's episode is titled Lost at Sea for two reasons. Firstly, because we'll be hearing from service members who spent a lot of their time bobbing on the water, Kurt Kalbfleisch of the Navy and Tinley Lozano of the Coast Guard, but also because their stories both touch on what they sacrificed and endured during their service that impacted them for the rest of their lives. Let's start off with Kurt. Hi, this is Chief Petty Officer Kurt Kalbfleisch, United States Navy from San Diego. Kurt Kalbfleisch knew he was going to join the Navy ever since one formative experience he had as a young boy. My dad was a freelance commercial photographer, and he got a gig to go aboard Navy frigates. And there was one photo with one of the pilots flipping my dad the bird as they took off. And I said, that's what I want to do. When the first Gulf War broke out, he was assigned to the USS Cowpins, which at the time was still being built. The crew was all together, and we all got to watch it on CNN, and the joke got to be that we were in the Gulf. We were in the Gulf of Maine. Not long afterwards, though, he did see action as a surface warfare officer when UN weapons inspectors were denied access in Iraq near the end of Bush Sr.'s presidency. You spend a lot of time training, and I never felt like anything would be lost if I didn't shoot. It just kind of felt like we just need to be ready for it. But the struggle Kurt chose to write about has to do with a particular truth concerning military service, especially if you have multiple deployments under your belt. And that is that no matter where you go, you're always leaving somebody behind, whether it's your family or your comrades. I never really had the textbook warm, happy homecoming. It was very much like, you know, I love these guys. And then in a week or in two weeks, I'm probably never going to see them again. We just don't know. And after a while, somewhere along the way, the idea of home can get lost. But I'll let Kurt tell you the rest. Hi, my name is Kurt Kalbfleisch, and my piece is called Half Asleep in the Blue Light Lounge. It's always late evening dark in here, but I've got friends sitting to the left and right of me, and there's music. Friends might be the wrong word. They're people I trust really trust. Like, I know they would walk through fire for me. I know because we've practiced it, walking through fire for each other, with actual fire. If a guy will put on six layers of clothes and go stand in a 500-degree room for you, you can trust him. I call these men brother even though they're not my family, except that they are my family, just not the kind of family where I know their wives' names or how old their kids are. The music we listen to isn't what I'd set up a channel on Pandora for. It's really just information being passed on the radio with an occasional crypto screech like something from a Philip Glass concerto, which I definitely don't want to create a Pandora channel for. Still, It's music. Satellite data jazz, man. Chief LaPlume called it the Blue Light Lounge, and 
We all slump in front of our consoles, gazing into orange screens, getting wasted on radar scope dope, waiting. Recruiters won't tell you about the waiting. We wait for everything. I mostly wait for my relief. I trust my relief with my life, but I don't trust him to wake up on time, so I keep an eye on the clock every day. When there's a gap in the music, the conversation flows. OS2 Greenup likes orchestrating lists of things like all the slang terms we can think of for vagina. Our list of terms for penis took days to finish and ended up being 150 items long. Because my brothers are like 12. So it's not unusual when the watch officer suddenly screams, Tiny, put your clothes on! Greenup had suggested that OS2 Heine didn't have the balls to stand the rest of his watch naked. One does not decline a challenge in the blue light lounge. Sometimes there's mail. Actual mail, which I'd call snail mail if snails could swim. When it gets quiet, which is rare, you'll find one or two of the guys reading a letter. On this particular night, I have mail from home. The date on the postmark is from three weeks ago. Email is not a thing yet. It's thick, though, and that's exciting. Lots of news from home. Not really. There is a two-page letter, front and back of one page, so really a page and a half. And there is a bundle of pages from Consumer Reports. A small part of me knows that she didn't mean to annoy me, but the rest of me, the rest of me is annoyed. Her letter begins with a complaint that I have not been holding up my end of the conversation, as if one can have a conversation with six weeks between responses. She hasn't been receiving enough letters from me, though she doesn't tell me how many letters she wants. I feel defensive and guilty. I haven't written as often as I would like, but my silence has been justified. For most of January, no mail was permitted on or off the ship. Operational security, we're told. It makes sense. We had just launched 10 tomahawks into Iraq, destroying Saddam Hussein's nuclear weapons program. I wrote 11 pages about it, determined to make up for what I knew had been an uncomfortable silence. I wrote in detail about how it felt to do the job we were trained for. I wrote about the adrenaline rush, the dead serious moments, the quiet, the roar of missile boosters, the scramble to launch an extra missile when a tomahawk from another ship exploded over their heads, the raucous celebration by shipmates who had merely stood by and watched, the football game on television with nachos and near beer on the mess decks, the halftime interruption when the White House press secretary announced what we'd done. I wrote about getting the horrifying news that a missile had fallen into a hotel lobby about not knowing if it was our missile, about not knowing if it was my missile. 11 pages. 
I took the weeks off on my fingers. Our letters must have passed each other in the mail. I feel better, though later, months later, I will not. Most of the rest of her letter is a treatise on why I should abandon my plan to buy a new car when I get home. It is a plan we had agreed to when I let her talk me into selling my truck before deployment. I decide not to mention it when I write back, because it'll be six weeks before I can read her response and by then, we'll be almost home. The pages from Consumer Reports are, to her, the final word on the subject. There is no use in arguing. The last paragraph of her letter stops my heart. She tells me she spent a wonderful weekend in Mexico riding horses on the beach with a friend. She means a male friend. Suspicion ripples my thoughts, making it feel as though I'm viewing the world from underwater, except that I can breathe. I don't respond to the letter from home. I can't think of anything to say. We pass through the Strait of Hormuz and head for home. The ship lurches through heavy seas, and except for the poor bastard who's never managed to get his sea legs, we're happy. The blue light lounge smells like strong coffee and weak vomit, so maybe not entirely happy. Relieved. Relieved is a much better word. We're home, and we're six weeks from home. In Hong Kong, I search for a payphone. The very idea of the coming conversation makes me uneasy. Against all hope, the call goes through. I ask about Mexico. She tells me it's nothing. I ask her directly, are you sleeping with him? She laughs and puts our daughter on the phone. Heidi is four and the sound of her voice makes me giddy. And then she talks mostly about the new man in her life, the new man in her mother's life. I feel dizzy and nauseous. Three weeks from home. There isn't much for me to do on watch in the blue light lounge, so I mostly sit with my hands in my coat pockets, collar turned up against the chill of the air conditioning, and think about my new car. If my brothers notice me brooding, they don't say anything. I want to hate them, at least a little. They are my home, and I have to leave them soon, and it will hurt too much if I love them when I go. I convince myself that they are the reason my marriage is ending the reason my marriage has ended. The home I'm returning to doesn't exist anymore. I need a new home. A 1993 Ford Probe GT, steel blue. My wife and I will stop at the mile of cars on our way home the day I arrive. I know to the dollar what I will spend. I know because of consumer reports two weeks from home. We stop in Pearl Harbor to pick up fathers and sons, brothers and nephews, guests who will ride the ship home with us. My father is among them. He knows something's wrong, but I don't tell him, can't tell him, have no idea what words to use to tell him that his son is a failure and cannot love. Nine days from home. 
At sea, there are air shows and flybys and great thumping walls of water. There are guests who want tours, sea stories, gunnery demonstrations, steel beach picnics, and burgers and water balloons. And nine last days and nights at home in the Blue Light Lounge. In the Blue Light Lounge, my father sits next to me and we talk about everything, but that my marriage is failing, has already failed weeks ago. And I am still 24 hours from beginning the two years it will take for me to learn I could have done nothing to stop it. The music in the Blue Light Lounge is buoyant. My brothers are laughing with their sons and their fathers, a warm cacophony. I sit beside my father with my hands in my coat pockets, still not talking about that first view of her in the crowd on the pier, not talking about that first embrace, talking about my new car. We talk about philosophy, about duty and honor and time away from home. I am at home and eight hours from home. I transfer in a week, and though I don't want to leave, I have to, and so I just want to get it over with. I have to leave home to go home. The crowd is on the pier, of course, and they are joyfully noisy. She is not among them, not at first. Later, she will admit she could not bring herself to leave her lover's bed, but right now, I can only wonder even though I know, I know. I have known for weeks. The crowds are still there at least when she arrives, gloriously, colorfully late. She greets me with a smile and a hug and later I'll see that it looked pretty convincing on camera. We go home, my wife, our daughter, my father and me, we do not stop at the mile of cars. My father arranges for my wife and me to have a few hours alone. She pours shots of tequila. It is not a celebration. Afterwards, I feel like a chore. I know that I will fail to be what she wants, just as I always have. She insists that I buy a used Honda Civic instead of the new probe she agreed to seven months ago. So I did. Two weeks later in her brother's kitchen, her family asked about the tomahawk strike they saw on CNN in January. Was it you? Yes, I replied. Didn't Kim tell you? All eyes turned to her. I don't know what you do, she says. What about my letter? She shrugs, dismisses it and me with a wave of her hand. Less than a week later on my way home from work, I say out loud and stop at the mile of cars to buy that Ford Probe GT. It is steel blue and it reminds me of my home in the Blue Light Lounge. I traded in the Civic, deliberately accepting less for it than she wanted. I pissed her off, but I wanted to. She demanded to know why I bought the car, and I told her it was because of consumer reports. 
On the day she drove away with our children, I opened a filing cabinet and found a letter. It is unopened, but I know it is 11 pages long. parts of your story is the line you have when you're talking about preparing to leave these guys who spent so much time with and the process you go through of saying goodbye before you actually have to say goodbye. Do you mind kind of unwrapping that a little bit more for us and talking oh, about yeah. it? Yeah. I mean, you get close to your shipmates and it's um, when you know you, when it's time to transfer you've been so close to all of these people and um, you've shared some really intimate moments. I mean, the times when, when you're seasick, that's a vulnerable kind of a moment, right? And you get guys either needling you or being supportive or just ignoring you to be sick in peace. But that kind of thing can happen all the time and that intimacy of living two feet away from five other guys and then suddenly to know that you know what I'm never going to see these guys again my three years is up and I'm not going to see these guys again and I'm going to have to move on and maybe we'll stay in touch but maybe we won't and the odds are pretty good that we won't and maybe we'll have some good sea stories to tell about you know so and so threatening to shoot down an airliner accidentally and then you know maybe not maybe you never see that guy again so it's just yeah uh, i don't know if that unpacks it entirely but just that's not kinda you don't know what's going to come next once you're out whether you're going to see them again yeah um i mean you know at the time that this was all going on uh, facebook didn't exist it was a lot harder to stay in touch with people and took a lot more time because you couldn't just throw what's happening up on, you know, some board somewhere and everybody knows what's going on and you're all keeping track of each other that way. It was more like, who do I really want to stay in touch with? Who do I want an address for? And knowing that that guy's probably going to move and you'll lose touch with him. So do you want to go all the way to getting their parents' address and that kind of stuff? It was just, it was very much like you know, I love these guys, and then in a week or in two weeks, I'm probably never going to see them again, or maybe by luck I'll get stationed with somebody again, and that'll be cool, but we just don't know. When you're at that stage, do you feel like there's a wall that comes down? There was for me. Uh, I very much really sort of pulled away early to kind of ease that transition. Um I think I've seen, you know, some people do and some people don't, but uh, I think that's a pretty common thing. Of the four deployments and four returns you went through, what was consistently the most recurring challenge you faced, melting back into civilian or stateside life? I would say that that the deployment that I talk about in this one was really reintegrating myself into my family, trying to figure out a way to get back into... The routine. I think the thing that happens on deployment is that when you leave people behind, 
then you have that snapshot of those final couple of days or the final couple of weeks. You have that snapshot of what life is like at home. And then you go away for six months, eight months, 10 months, a year, and then you come back and things have changed because life is dynamic. But the picture in your head, so you have to kind of reconcile, okay, I got to let go of this mental picture because things have moved on. And that can be a real struggle and a source of conflict, particularly in a relationship. Did that conflict carry over to your relationship with your kids or were they old enough to really know what was going on? No, um, it really didn't because uh, my first deployment, my older daughter was four. My younger daughter hadn't been born yet. The next deployment I did was in 98, so they were still too young. By that time, I was divorced from their mom, so I only had them part of the time anyhow, so we were used to doing that once a month, kind of, okay, now I need to abandon the snapshot because they've had a month and they're they're a little bit more grown than they were the last time I saw them. So it really wasn't that much of a factor with my kids. One question I've been asking everybody in this process is, if you were to be in a position to give advice to somebody who's about to get out of the military, say, in the next six weeks or so, what would your advice be? Chill. Don't worry. Because everybody goes through that panic phase for the last month or two of their time in the service going, what am I going to do next? What am I going to do next? It's going to appear. You know, rely on the people you know to help you find a good place to start. And, you know, it's starting again, but just don't panic. Hey there, friends. Dewey Bratcher here, a veteran of the U.S. Navy and host of Permission to Speak Freely, a web video series we produced with KPBS and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting's Veterans Coming Home Initiative. A group of contributors from Incoming got together with Justin and the folks at KPBS and decided to tackle some of the biggest misconceptions veterans face after returning to the civilian world with some humor and wit and a little bit of sass. If you enjoy Incoming, we think you'll be glad to see Permission to Speak Freely, too. And you can check it out online at kpbs.veteranscominghome.org. That's kpbs.veteranscominghome.org. We think you'll be glad you did, and hopefully you'll want to share it. Hey, thanks for supporting your friendly neighborhood veteran artist. I'm Dewey, and I'm out. Welcome back to Incoming, where we're continuing with the second part of today's episode, Lost at Sea, by hearing from Tinley Lozano. Tinley served as an officer in the U.S. Coast Guard, where she qualified for the elite dive school, on top of serving on narcotic intercept missions. But although the Coast Guard has a history of gender integration beyond other branches of the military, some of the old ways of doing things were very much still in effect during Tinley's time in the service. And the pervasive sense that she was unwanted there just for being a woman by those who very much prefer to keep their environment a man's world proved not only demoralizing, but in some instances, it was the most dangerous part of her job as well. She just recently completed her MFA in creative nonfiction literature from Sierra Nevada College. And if you Google her name, I guarantee you'll find a lot of her work out there online. Here's Tenley. Hi, my name is Tenley Lozano, and my story is Drown Proofing. 
The female Coast Guard lieutenant handed me a pair of khaki shorts, her blonde hair and a tiny ponytail that hung over her dark blue t-shirt with yellow letters declaring Coast Guard Diver. If you make it through this week and get a billet as a dive officer, this is what you'll wear for PT every day in dive school. You'd better get used to running and swimming in them, she said. The khaki shorts were a rough cotton material with two D-rings at the top and an attached strip of cloth that served as a belt. The dive shorts hadn't changed in style or material since at least the 1940s. The original frogmen, who made up the underwater demolition teams in World War II, wore these high-cut shorts. The men in Sea Lab had worn them when they lived underwater for weeks at a time. The divers in Vietnam wore them when conducting underwater surveys, and every diver since had worn them when training at Navy Dive School. This week-long Coast Guard dive screener was the first step towards becoming one of the few women in the Brotherhood. I stood on the pool deck in my two-piece Speedo sports bra swimsuit, the black bottom half now covered by the high-waist khaki short shorts. A chief walked right up to me, his bald head shiny in the warm, humid air, and I watched his brown push broom mustache as he told me, you're not wearing these right. He stepped in closer and grabbed the top of my shorts, startling me. He tightened the fabric belt while I stood deathly still, dumbfounded that this man would grab me in the open in front of the other divers. Was anyone watching this? He leaned down and said, you shouldn't wear such a revealing swimsuit. It'll give people the wrong idea, especially dirty old men like me. He winked at me and smirked, then gave the cloth a final jerk, pulling me slightly off balance. He walked away and I was left standing frozen, wondering what I had gotten myself into. Only two weeks earlier, I was relaxing on board the Coast Guard Cutter Midget in the air-conditioned officer mess after a four-hour watch in the sweltering engine room, where the heat of the machinery combined with the humidity of the Pacific Ocean air. My boss walked in and said, well, Tenley, you were just approved to attend the dive screener. You'll leave for the airport as soon as we pull into Mexico. You'll miss the Puerto Vallarta port call and the transit back to San Diego. I hope you're ready. After two and a half months at sea during the raining season in the Eastern Pacific Ocean, my flight landed in Virginia to snow on the ground and a crisp moonlit February night. I had been training on the ship to prepare for dive school, lifting free weights, doing pull-ups, running on the treadmill in the suffocating gym, and swimming laps in resort pools during the handful of days we'd had at port calls. Despite being surrounded by an ocean, there were very few opportunities to swim. When we'd left our home port of Seattle the day after Thanksgiving, I hadn't even known there would be a dive screener. I was lucky that I had this swimsuit with me. One of the men standing at the other end of the pool yelled, Barna, get over here! I walked briskly over to the clump of divers. A man with short brown hair and a Coast Guard diver shirt said, you just passed the dive physical fitness test. That is the minimum standard to begin training. Now we're going to test your aquatic adaptability. Let's see if you trained as much in the pool as you did on those pull-ups. My memory of the rest of that day is a blur of chlorine, burning eyes, and fear. The divers introduced me to drown proofing and told me that it was an exercise that I would be required to pass at dive school. As I held the push-up position, they explained that I would be given a length of rope two feet long. For the first five minutes of the task, I would have my legs tied together at the ankle with a square knot, while remaining in the water face down, taking one breath at a time when necessary. What they didn't tell me was that they would be trying to get water down my throat when I came up for air, splashing, spinning, and dunking me. After a successful first five minutes with my feet tied, I would have to untie the knot and place my hands behind my back and hold the rope there floating for another five minutes. The trick, they said, was to stay calm. I yelled that I understood, hoo and all that. Then they told me to tie my legs together. I jumped into the water, 
and the five-minute countdown began. I struggled through the first part. With my legs immobilized, I treaded water with my hands. Five people were watching my every move and trying to push me to the breaking point. They were splashing water at my face every time I lifted my head for a breath. I tried pushing my tongue into the roof of my mouth to block, and I drank the water that came in anyway. My eyes burned from the chlorine as I watched the feet of the people around me in an attempt to sneak a breath facing away from them. I was exhausted by the time they told me to switch the rope to my hands. With the rope on my wrists, I was unable to tread water effectively. I was sinking and kicking my feet frantically to get back to the surface for each breath. Panic crept into my mind. How long has it been? I gasped for air and swallowed only water. That was the moment I released my clenched hands from behind my back and yelled, sputtering and coughing, safety time out. The divers immediately stopped spinning and dunking me and pushed me to the edge of the pool, shouting at me to get out. The chief said loudly, get in the leaning rest. He knelt next to me on the pool deck and said, you need to relax. This statement smacked of hypocrisy, considering that they had just tried everything they could to get me to quit. They would have sent me home right then if they hadn't been desperate for decent dive officer candidates. The official dive screener had been earlier in the year, but I wasn't able to attend because my ship had been too busy busting drug runners. None of the officers had made it through the first screener, so they had scheduled a special one, just for me. I hadn't said that I'd quit, only that I needed a timeout. They kept me there for the rest of the week, learning that I was a competent runner and strong swimmer with fins on, but the divers kicked my butt every day in the pool with breath hold exercises. Each night I dreamed of drowning and woke up sweating, counting down the hours and minutes until I would be back in the water. The smell of chlorine didn't leave my skin until I was back on my ship and sailing homeward. After that first day at the screener, I didn't see that mustache chief again, and I told myself that he was an outlier, that the other divers weren't like him. I had to believe that I would be treated like an equal at my dive unit, or I wouldn't have the will to make it through training. I graduated as a marine engineer diving officer in March of 2012, and the lead instructor of my class, an army staff sergeant and ranger, shook my hand and congratulated me. I never expected that two weeks later when I returned to my unit in San Diego that I would be told by another chief, they must have gotten easy on you at dive school. I've seen how it is for women there. They don't hold you to the same standards. I couldn't have known that another dive supervisor would hit on me every time he drank. I hadn't imagined that after two and a half years of proving myself as a diver and deployable team leader, yet another chief would continue to question my ability to lift heavy equipment. I wore the dive insignia on my uniform with pride, but many of the senior Coast Guard divers made it clear that they would never respect me. When I began training for dive school, I didn't have any idea that I would be able to hold my breath for three straight minutes while being drown-proofed by someone dunking and spinning me. By the time I got to dive school, Drown-proofing was my favorite exercise, the only one where I could just relax in the peaceful quiet of the water, where my khaki shorts and white t-shirt blended into the group of bobbing bodies. Underwater felt like the safest place I could be. So why don't we start off at the very beginning with your reasons for joining the military in the first place? Well, I was in high school and I was trying to decide what college to go to. And I wanted to study photography originally. And then I kind of realized 
that I wouldn't make any money as a photographer and that I, I would go into debt basically because I was the third kid in the family and couldn't afford college out of pocket. So I would have been going into debt for several years and I decided that maybe I really wanted to do aerial photography and then that went into me becoming obsessed with helicopters and wanting to become a helicopter pilot. And since I'm five foot two, the only option really was the Coast Guard to be a pilot and I wanted to be an engineer as well. So I decided that the Coast Guard Academy was the best fit and that I would give it a try, and that I could always fall back on photography. Where does the Coast Guard rank in terms of the branches of service and gender integration and inequality? I think overall they have the same amount of women in active duty Coast Guard. The Coast Guard Academy is a lot higher with 30% women cadets. All of the jobs in the Coast Guard have been open to women for years. What was the contrast between your expectations going into the Coast Guard? on that front and the reality once you were in? I thought it wouldn't be a big deal that because all of the jobs had been open for so long that women would be doing all kinds of different things. They would be working in the engine room and being rescue swimmers and helicopter pilots and divers, because why not? I mean, if you can qualify at the same standards for the jobs, then why not have women doing them? But a lot of the jobs have these pockets of male dominance, that they're kind of stuck in the dark ages especially with law enforcement positions and with the divers, it seemed like there were very few women. The unit I was at at one point had 130 people and there were four women. And a couple of them were support positions that didn't deploy. So we definitely were outnumbered. And there was it was very noticeable with how we were treated as well. Talk to me about where, where throughout your career with the Coast Guard you felt the discrimination was the most evident and the least evident. Where did it matter the least that you were a woman and where was it very obvious that, that was affecting the way you were being treated? Well, at the Coast Guard Academy, you basically, the way it's structured is you do your swab summer, which is like boot camp, and then you go into the school year, your freshman school year, and you learn all the military stuff as you're doing your academics. And then during the next summers, you go to different Coast Guard units and you're mixed in with active duty units. So I went my senior summer, I was on a Coast Guard cutter uh, doing a two and a half month patrol busting drug runners looking for cocaine smugglers in the eastern Pacific Ocean. And we had 12 cadets and six of them were female and we just about doubled the women they had on the ship. It was a weird environment to me because I was used to the academy where it was 33% women. It was almost a third. And it, it was never noticeable, really, that I was female at the Coast Guard Academy. But then when I got into the real Coast Guard, it was pointed out at every turn, every second. The first thing when we got on there was, well, this is how you need to isolate yourself so you're not seen as fraternizing with people. This is how you, you need to defend yourself from being perceived as doing the wrong thing. And that perception is reality. So no matter what you're really doing, if you're just studying firefighting equipment on the mess deck, out in public, you know, on the ship, if people see you talking to someone they don't think you should be talking to, then you're going to get in trouble. And that has never made any sense to me. Can you talk about that, that impossible inability to fraternize in a culture that's so fraternal? I think it's, it's very difficult for women to be in those environments. And as an officer, I definitely felt like I needed to know my people to be a good leader. I needed to understand what they were going for, you know, what was going on in their lives back home. Like, did they leave a family behind? Were they getting divorced? What was happening? Especially with the divers where you had to know if somebody had a nagging injury that they maybe wouldn't tell you about. You had to know them very personally to be able to do a good job. But that often was seen as knowing them 
too well, there was really no way to do my job without getting in trouble with someone. Do you feel like the impetus is always on the woman in those situations? The expectation isn't placed on men to have the right behavior. It's on women to protect themselves from men's bad behavior rather than actually stopping the bad behavior. Did you ever feel it was that way? It wasn't even always that there was bad behavior happening. It was just assumed that something uncouth was going on. If you were speaking to an enlisted man, if you were friendly with somebody, like if you were polite and nice and said good morning, then oh, you know, you must be into him, you must be sleeping with him, or you're going to the broom closet when nobody's looking and (laughs) and having sex with people. There were all kinds of crazy rumors that would fly, and it didn't mean that anything had even been seen. I mean, you could just be working with people and be on the same watch rotation for three weeks where you saw them every single day for eight hours a day, and you get to know some people really well that way. And maybe you cross some barriers, but you're spending all that time together because you're working together, not because you're going out of your way to see somebody. Right. Can you talk to us about why it's important for you personally that the military be more gender integrated? I think a lot of the time I had a different way of seeing things and I had a different way of approaching situations that really helped my team. And I was very much... I wanted to know what was happening in everybody's lives and I wanted to be able to know like who to take on my deployment and who needed to be at home right then and who was the most qualified for each job. A lot of the time I saw that other men weren't willing to put the time in to figure all those things out. So they would just grab whoever came first and that would be their team. And if their team was properly prepared, then I guess they were lucky. And if they weren't, then they would deal with it when they were on scene. There are a lot of different styles of leadership. And I think women in particular, a lot of times do think differently and that can really help. That can really be advantageous to the team. And I think a lot of the time we want everyone to get along and work together, which makes everyone be a little bit nicer to each other. The job like this where you require, where trust between teammates is so high. Can you talk to us a little bit or give us an anecdote about the anxiety of not being able to trust the people who are kind of responsible for you staying alive in in the field, whether it's diving or, like you said, you were intercepting drug smugglers on cutters for a while. What's it like to have to do that not knowing who has your back? Well, I usually knew who had my back. They weren't always the people that were the highest ranking because we would have dive supervisors or boarding team leaders that not everyone trusted and not everyone thought that they were fully qualified for their jobs. And it wasn't just me saying that it was you know the other guys on the team were saying like this person doesn't really know what he's doing so we all need to step up and be extra good at our jobs today and I think that was something that was very obvious in the dive team that was something that we talked about before diving the supervisor might step off to the side to do something and we'd be like okay guys he doesn't have a together so we're all going to be 100% we're all going to watch each other's backs and you know just know that We're looking out for each other, even if not everyone else on the team is. Imagine that would cause a lot of rage having your certification doubted foundlessly and then have to work with, you know, male counterparts who were, for all intents and purposes, a liability. It was very frustrating. There were people that were senior divers and they weren't held to the same standards that I was. They were expected to qualify for certain positions, but then when they didn't meet that, they were given excuses and extensions. But if I didn't meet something, then 
they threatened to transfer me early. It was kind of behind closed doors. There was no, there wasn't a paperwork trail on me being a bad diver. (laughs) So, I mean, I I guess they, they always felt a little bit like empty threats because I knew that it's very hard to kick somebody out of a job and you have to really be doing things wrong. During inspections, I was getting the highest score on exams and testing really well. And my supervisor said at one time that he knew that I was smarter than everyone else at the unit, but that they didn't trust my leadership. And these were people who were shirking off deployments because they wanted to stay home and work in their garage. You know, it was it never made sense. I'm Tenley Lozano, and this is my story, 49 Steps to Owning a Service Dog. 1. Join the military at 17 to serve your country and as a way to get a college degree without debt. Serve 9 years and 7 months on active duty. 2. Separate from the military as soon as your commitment is complete, in order to get away from frequent deployments and even more frequent harassment. 3. Realize that your experiences in the military affected you in ways you don't understand. You've kept away from situations where men are drinking because you can't relax. You've been avoiding crowds for months because the anxiety of being around all those people triggers migraines. And you get jumpy when a strange man stands too close behind you in line for coffee. 4. Visit local animal shelters to pick out a dog for a new running and hiking buddy now that you won't have to worry about short-notice deployments. Choose one that is athletic, high energy, with intelligent eyes, and a tendency to lick your fingers and face. A volunteer at the shelter will say in a high-pitched tone, Oh, you're adopting Princess. She's such a beautiful dog. We rescued her from a shelter up north the day she was going to be put down. Then we brought her here, and she was adopted by a couple that kept her in a kennel for 8 to 10 hours a day until she chewed out of it and destroyed their house. They returned her after a week. So she might have some issues. Immediately change her name from Princess to something more fitting for a real dog. 5. Read online about service dogs for veterans and decide to start training a rescue dog. You're not sure if you need a service dog or not, but you know you need help. And if you decide not to use her as a service dog, you figure you'll just have an extremely obedient pet. 6. Visit the VA hospital to start your disability benefits for tinnitus, caused by hours working underwater as a diver where sound is amplified, and receive a U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs ID card. 7. Learn that it is possible to have a disability rating for a psychiatric disorder. 8. Admit to yourself that you've suffered with depression and anxiety for years, but hid it from your coworkers and medical record under the fear of losing your job in the military. 9. Learn that there is a mental health floor in the VA hospital with walk-in spots to see a psychiatrist. Bring your service dog in training because you will need her. You will be in tight spaces with many other veterans and she may be the only thing preventing you from having a panic attack. 10. Focus on your dog. When you sit in the mental health waiting area under the buzzing fluorescent lights, she will sit obediently at your feet, completely relaxed, with her attention on you. VA hospital workers will smile at you and say, Your dog is so well-behaved. A man in his 50s with a shaggy beard will stand in the corner of the waiting area talking loudly. He will say, There's not supposed to be dogs here. It's a hospital. No dogs in the hospital. Why is there a dog? No dogs allowed. She's got a dog. No dogs allowed. Why is nobody kicking out her dog? No damn dogs. 11. Ignore this man. 12. 
sit down in the psychiatrist's office. She will ask you, so you're here for medication? 13. Tell her that you don't want meds. 14. Tell her that you want a prescription for a service dog. 15. Explain to her what a service dog is. 16. Learn that sexual harassment, sexual assault, and rape fall under the title of military sexual trauma. 17. Receive referral to the Military Sexual Trauma and Interpersonal Trauma Clinic of the VA Healthcare System. 18. Schedule appointment for mental health orientation meeting at the local VA clinic in two months. 19. Memorize the definition of a service dog listed in the Americans with Disabilities Act. Service animals are defined as dogs that are individually trained to do work or perform tasks for people with disabilities. 20. Know your access rights. Under the ADA, businesses that serve the public must allow service animals to accompany people with disabilities in all areas of the facility where the public is normally allowed to go. 21. Know that the staff of a store may ask only two questions when they see you with your service dog. Is the dog required because of a disability? And what task has the dog been trained to perform? 22. Be sure to keep your response vague when answering questions about your service dog to avoid telling what your disability is and being discriminated against. Do not announce, my service dog is trained to watch behind me when I have to stand with my back to other people. She blocks people from getting too close to me and triggering anxiety attacks. And she also guards me and licks me when I have an anxiety attack. Instead say, my service dog alerts to my medical condition. 23. Attend mental health orientation at the local VA clinic. 24. Following orientation, meet with yet another psychiatrist. 25. Sit down in the psychiatrist's office. She will ask you, so you're here for medication? 26. Tell her that you don't want meds. Tell her that you want a prescription for a service dog. Explain to her what a service dog is. 27. Listen closely as the psychiatrist recommends that you attend therapy sessions. She will tell you that it will be several months before you can get an appointment for an individual therapy session. You're better off signing up for the group therapy sessions. We start the groups in cycles, so it looks like you'll have to wait three months until the next ones start. We can sign you up now and call you before the group meets. 28. Sign up for the anxiety group therapy sessions. Do not expect a phone call. You will not receive a phone call. 29. Make appointment to see the physician assistant in two weeks. 30. Sit down in the physician assistant's office. He will ask you, so you're here for medication? 31. Tell him that you don't want meds. Tell him that you want a prescription for a service dog. Explain to him what a service dog is. 32. Receive prescription for a medical alert service dog to assist with your diagnosed PTSD. 33. Contact nonprofit organization Train a Dog Save a Warrior to receive funding for service dog training. The man who answers the phone will say, How long were you in the military for? Don't you think you deserve free service dog training for everything you went through? 34. Complete application for the program, including multiple character references, mental health questionnaires, letters of recommendation from the VA physician assistant, and prescription for service dog. 
You'll be accepted into the program, and they will contact local trainers to find one who will work with you and your dog. 35. Don't get your hopes up about free service dog training. All local organizations will refuse to work with a PTSD service dog, claiming that they only train mobility dogs. 36. Continue training your dog on your own, paying for lessons with your own money. 37. Put a vest on your dog that makes her easily identifiable as a service dog. 38. Never put your dog's name on a vest or collar that other people can easily read. They will shout your service dog's name and try to distract her. 39. You can add a patch that says Disabled Veteran. 40. Be prepared to answer questions such as, How is the dog a disabled veteran? Was she in combat in Iraq? And, Bless you, honey. What organization are you training the dog for? I could never do that. Train a dog and give it away. 41. Explain to strangers that the service dog is, in fact, for you, and that you are the disabled veteran. Expect the stranger to become confused, and then the next question will be, Oh, so you have PTSD? 42. Politely explain that it is actually extremely rude to ask a stranger about her medical history. 43. When people ask to pet your dog, say one of two things. Not right now, she's working. Or, sure, she's friendly, thank you for asking. Choose which one to say based on how focused you need your service dog to be at the moment. If she's being touched by strangers, she won't be paying as much attention to you. 44. Expect drive-by pettings and people whistling and calling to your dog when in public places. 45. Respond to this unwanted behavior by saying, Please don't do that. She's working right now. Sometimes people will apologize. Sometimes they will yell at you or mumble obscenities under their breath. Ignore them. 46. Always bring a collapsible water bowl with you. Train your dog to pee and poop on command and on grass, dirt, concrete, and astroturf. 47. When applying for jobs and interviewing, do not mention your service dog or disability until you have an offer. If it looks like you're about to get a job offer and you try to be open with the company wanting to work for an organization that accepts you and your service dog as a team, do not expect any further correspondence about the job. 48. Try leaving your dog at home even when you know you'll be working in a small, crowded room. Realize that you do need your service dog to help you focus, prevent migraines, and stop panic attacks. 49. Strangers will say, That's so great that you get to take your dog with you everywhere. Smile and think to yourself, Maybe one day they'll be so lucky. public radio listeners, this is Jennifer Corley, editor of Incoming and a teaching artist with So Say We All. If you've been enjoying our show and all of NPR's other terrific storytelling programs, have I got great news for you. You can do this yourself. Visit So Say We All's website at www.sosayweallonline.com to learn about all of the free education, performance, and publication opportunities we have. They're available to civilians and veterans alike. Everyone has a story to tell and we want to help you tell yours better. Hope to hear from you soon. Welcome back to Incoming, where we're talking to Coast Guard Officer Tinley Lozano about weighing the pros and cons of making the decision to get a service dog. 
the whole point of having a service dog is that you have this kind of like this little guardian with you on, on one way. Is at least it's how it looks like for me who doesn't have one. <laughs> but on the other hand, you know, as you say in your story, it's also this kind of proclamation to the world. It can be a detriment that no one can know when someone is suffering from anxiety or depression or panic attacks or PTSD. At the same time, it can be handy, like we say, for job interviews and things like that, where it's maybe advantageous that they don't know. But with a service dog, it's there. She has the vest. Can you talk to me about the process of making that brave decision to say it's going to be out there? I struggled with deciding to have her as a service dog, and I wasn't sure that it was something that I was comfortable with, you know, basically telling everyone, yes, there's something wrong with me. So much so that I need to bring my dog with me everywhere. <laughs> like that's, that's not normal, and I know that. But eventually I realized that I am so much better with her, that I can think clearly. I can be more myself when I have her with me, so it's, it's worth it. And if I can help explain to other people what service dogs do, then I'm happy to do that. I don't know, it's a kind of a pride point to have the disabled veteran patch on her vest that I know people look at me and they don't expect that I'm a veteran. They don't expect that I've done all the things I've done. And I think people should look twice and maybe think more about who veterans are. Is that because in particular, I mean, our listeners can't see you, but <laughs> you know, you're a like you said, five foot four, five foot two, one hundred twenty pounds, one hundred twenty pounds, yeah. blonde, young woman. Do you feel like that puts you in a position where you're like the ambassador <laughs> to civilians on behalf of disabled veterans? Yeah, I think in our culture, people have an expectation that they can pet any dog that they see. And I'm not sure why that is because, I mean, obviously my service dog is not going to bite you, but you probably should not put your one-year-old child in front of it and start playing with my dog's face. That's not a good idea. That's not a good idea with any dog. If me explaining to people does help someone else with a service dog, I mean, I, I know that I'm definitely more approachable than a lot of veterans with service dogs are. And a lot of people will chew you out for touching their dog. A lot of people will curse at you if you assume something about them and their service dog. And some people can't control that. I'm a little bit more approachable, so I'm happy to explain to people, you know, when I am feeling well. But sometimes I do get really grumpy and just be like, no, please, just let us be. I thought it was really interesting the way when, when you said that, you know, having Elu with you um, kind of freed you up to be yourself. Like it almost unburdened you from that occupation of, of, of having to worry. Did that kind of parallel your own decision or your own journey to accept this as part of who you were? Um, I had been taking Elu around. I'd been training her as a service dog and kind of trying to figure out what I wanted her to do and what her tasks would be. I was at the Del Mar Fair last summer uh, for a concert and she had these little earmuffs that was super cute so she had little concert earmuffs for her puppy ears when we were heading back out after the concert there's this huge crowd and we were stuck like face to back of the neck with everybody and like shuffling through and I was tensing up and freaking out and I couldn't talk and eventually just jumped out of the crowd and fell on the floor in a panic attack and Elu stood in front of me, like full guard, blocking people from getting too close. Then as soon as she knew that I was calming down, she started licking my face and, and helping me kind of come back to myself. And that's when I knew that she had it in her to be a service dog, that she's got the right instincts and it would be a huge help to have her with me. That's when I decided that I definitely wanted to complete the training. Can you explain to us why a veteran would not want to seek treatment while they were in the military for a mental condition? Well, when I was a diver, I thought if I was seen for migraines, then they would get me medication and I would get bumped off of dive status. Or if I was seen for a medical condition, that my supervisors would hold it against me. That if I was trying to get help, 
that that would be one more thing that they could say, look, you're not, you're not suited for this job. Like the pressure's too much or you would be better off somewhere else. Like Let's would, help you. Like it would validate their expectation that way. Yes. And I didn't want to give anybody any reasons to say that I couldn't do the job. Do you feel like that's a common thread for service members sometimes? That Absolutely. That they don't seek treatment because they're trying to protect their careers? I think I've talked to a lot of people that have said that they didn't want, you know, medical stuff on their record for whatever reason. You know, maybe they're trying to get into a training program that was really strict. You know, the dive program has very strict medical screening. So does flight school and all these other programs. People that have worked for years to get to that point where they can apply for those positions don't want to throw it all away for something that maybe they think they can just figure out on their own. Last question I'll, I'll leave us with is if you were to uh, come across another service member who is about to rotate out and say about two weeks from the service, what advice do you think you'd give them if you could give them one piece? I'd say ask for help when you need it, that there are a lot of people that are out there that want to help you and are very supportive. And I found a lot of outlets in my community that have been amazingly helpful in surprising ways. The veterans writing groups and people like willing to go hiking with me in the desert and all kinds of different things. The people have been very receptive. I lied. I forgot. I had one more question. <laughs> By my standards, you're a pretty aggressive athlete. How long has that been a part of your character of, of wanting to prove people wrong? I think that's been something that has been a major part of my personality for a long time. I grew up with two older brothers and a younger sister and was always like running around chasing them, trying to keep up with them. I think when I joined the military, I didn't want to be told that I couldn't do anything, whether it was studying naval engineering or becoming a diver and carrying, you know, almost my body weight and gear, and I would get through. Cool. Tenley Lozano, thanks so much for being on Incoming. Thank you. That's our show. Our guests today were Kurt Kalfleisch and Tenley Lozano. Incoming is produced by myself, Justin Hudnell. Jennifer Corley is our editor. Original music by Chris Warren, Ariana Warren, Chris Apple, Charlie Arbalize, and Goat. Outro music is by 1032, a.k.a. Tim Koch. At KPBS, John Decker is program director, Nate John is web editor, Emily Jankowski is our technical director, and Kurt Conan is audio engineer. Funding is provided by the KPBS Explorer Program, the Veterans Initiative in the Arts from the California Arts Council, and listeners just like you. If you want to learn more and get involved, you can find us online at kpbs.org incoming or at incomingradio.org. And you can listen to all the episodes of Incoming currently available right now in podcast form on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever the fine pods are found. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again soon. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Institute of Contemporary Art San Diego with Gabriel Rico's Unity and Variety, neon, taxidermy, and augmented reality sculptures from locally sourced objects transform the galleries. Open September 24th in Balboa Park, icasandiego.org.